heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Welcome to Wine Crush Podcast. We are season five, episode five with the legend, Alex Sokolblosser. Oh, and look away, we started with a pop of champagne. How great is that? Welcome, Alex. Thank you for being on the Legends series and talking about Sokolblosser and the family. And It's a pleasure to be here, Heidi. Oh my God, to be on the Legends. That sounds like I am in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Do you feel like a legend? Uh, no, but I, why not? I would like to be a legend. You can always be a legend in your own mind. Oh, I am you, definitely a legend in my own mind. Yes, you can ask my wife, Ginny. She'll definitely tell you. But, well, uh, there we, <laughs> I'm a legend in yeah, my own mind. I guess maybe I'm a legend in my own mind sometimes. My children find me fully annoying, so, you know, there's always that. I think it's healthy to feel like you are number one, at least in your own mind. That and, helps you get through some things. And have some importance yes. back in you, yes. Yes. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yep. Yeah. Well, we are here to talk about you and your family and your family's legacy within the wine industry because it is one of the true pioneers of the Oregon wine extravaganza, so to speak. Yeah. And the virtual cornucopia here in the Willamette Valley. McMinnville, Oregon. In Yamhill County. Exactly. <laughs> it's intriguing to me why people choose where they live. And whether you're going to somewhere snowy, somewhere, well, I understand a warm beach with a margarita or a, a toddy, you know, but Oregon has always to me been like this little podunk secret place in the middle of nowhere, but people keep moving here. But in the seventies, when your mom and dad were doing whatever they're doing, they chose here to plant a vine. Yes. Why? How, how the hell did that happen? It, well, that's the question. I yes. was going to try to say it no, nice, but you said it perfectly. No, I mean, and and I was born in '74. So this is this is you know my parents bought property in 1970, planted in '71. So I was in in '70 and '71. I was just a nightmare in my parents' eyes. I mean, a, a dream in my parents' eyes that I would one day be around. But you know, when as I mentioned to you before. Asking my parents why they started plant, planted grapes and then started in the wine business, they gave me crazy stories that didn't make any sense. And it didn't sound like they matched. And they didn't match. They always, they, it's like they weren't thinking about what their story was. So later on, I would say with the last five, 10 years, they've been a little bit more, because last year we had our 50th anniversary, the last five, 10 years, they've been a little bit more um, thoughtful. And, you know, trying to carve out where in that recess in their mind, where that genesis was for starting the wine business. And I think it really, from my mom's side, she grew up in a family in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Go Bucky. A lot of Wisconsin Badgers in the family. And actually, I married, um, my wife Jenny is also from uh, Wisconsin. So I guess the apple didn't fall far from the tree. But my mom grew up in a family where they drank wine. In the 40s and 50s, they drank wine at the, at the dining room table. So wine was part of her growing up. So she was familiar with wine. Now, my dad um, had an experience similar to a lot of people in the wine industry. He got bitten by the wine bug in France. So he was going to college. 
And he was working at some French chalet, I think in, outside of Grenoble one summer. And he was working in the kitchen, washing dishes. And at night when they were done with service, the chef would open up some bottles, the mater d' would start popping some corks, and they would just drink and talk. And this was every night. And my dad's like, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to make wine. And then he came back to college. And then uh, to me, this is the thing that maybe really sunk it. This is the Genesis thing, was my dad had a subscription to Esquire magazine. And then the feature, there was a feature in, I think my dad said it was 1967, the 67 edition of Esquire magazine. It was a feature on a guy named Robert Mondavi. Big name in the wine world. Big name in the wine world. And my dad read that and went, yeah, I'm going to do this. And so fast forward to 1970 when he's his first job out of getting his um, master's degree in urban planning from UNC Chapel Hill was a job teaching at Portland State University. My great aunt at the time was living here, so he had some family. Um, my dad grew up in California, so my great aunt was living in Portland. So while my dad was driving out with my mom from UNC Chapel Hill to start teaching at PSU, like halfway across the country, my dad leaned over to my mom and said, hey, when we get to Oregon, let's buy some land and plant some grapes and then make wine. And my mom's like, where the hell did this come from? That's a crazy idea. And that's what they did. But that idea started before then. So, and my mom, it wasn't as crazy to my mom because she grew up drinking wine. She's like, yeah, I know wine. It's not foreign. It's not like saying, hey, we're going to become aeronautical engineers and we don't even know how to start a car, you know? <laughs> it's That's such a great reference. <laughs> I, I love it. So let me back up just a little bit because okay. I love the kind of how like two rivers come together. And so where did your mom and dad meet and how? Because that's always a good story as yeah, well. Yeah, they, they met in class at uh, college. They met at uh, Stanford University down in California. And I think they were, I think they were juniors in college. So it was a little bit later. And I don't, you know, God, geez, Heidi, I need to... I need to ask my parents again at what, what was the spark? Because um, my mom talks about some of her other boyfriends, you know, from Stanford who had motorcycles and she was driving around in the back of one of them with them. But I got to, I know I've asked my mom before and my dad, I got to, I got to ask him again, but I don't, I don't know exactly what, what the spark was. Was it across, you know, was it in class? Yeah, I think it was in class, but was it, you know, did my dad say something stupid or funny or did my mom? I don't know. See, these are good conversations to have. And and this kind of goes back to the question I had for you earlier today. What is that you haven't been asked that you don't that know the it, answer right to there. it? You just, we you hit just, it in you the just, first five just, minutes. Boom. Nice. Okay. Boom. You got it. Okay. So we're driving across the United States. Mm -hmm. We've decided to plant a vineyard yep. and grow grapes and make wine because your dad wants to be the next Robert Mondavi. Yep. So why Oregon? So, because that was, that's where my, my dad got a job. His first job was at teaching at Portland State. Oh, that's right. So they were coming to, to PSU. And my mom and dad being, going through college, they knew how to research, right? So they were doing a lot of research on where would be good places to grow grapes. And when they went to a realtor's office in Newburgh, 
to talk to a realtor that they got a, some advice to, to, to use in the realtor's office was another guy doing the same damn thing as my parents were trying to find, uh, the right piece of property to plant grapes on. And that was Gary Fuquay. So Gary Fuquay owned a vineyard that is right next to Alan Holstein's in the Dundee Hills. And Gary Fuquay's vineyard got bought by Archery Summit, who I used to work for back in the early 90s. I was a vineyard foreman for Archery Summit the year before they built the winery. But I remember farming Gary's property and going to Gary's old house. And I'm like, yeah, I remember Gary Fuquay. And I mean, I remember Gary, but... Even in the mid '90s, these guys that you know, archery summit guys that remember who Gary Fuquay was, but um, that was uh, who my parents met in the realtor's office, doing the same damn thing they were trying to do. So, even though my parents were pioneers, there were other people doing it, and where they ended up getting grapes was right next to David Lett, who started it in 1965. It is so interesting the, the serendipitous circles yes. that everybody kind of kind of was running in and the thought processes were kind of in the same circle, but in different households, so to speak. And so with that being so early, so young, so, you know, adventurous at the, that point in time, were they friends or were they competitors? Definitely friends. I mean, I think what, what unified a lot of these people was that there was, and this is something that I didn't grow up in the fifties and sixties. So I'm not as familiar with, I just, you know, believe my my parents when they say this, is there was this kind of back to the earth movement. It wasn't necessarily hippies. It was people saying, hey, you know, Earth Day started in the 70s. And there was this kind of acknowledgement that it wasn't just being daisy kids. It was, let's look at the earth, not as something to extract from, but something to live on and something to live with. So, that's what I see. My my parents were not hippies, but they were definitely back to the earth people. Huh. So, and they embraced farming. You know, they were not farmers growing up, but they embraced farming. They embraced what that meant. And when I would see the Ponzi's or the Campbell's or the Adelsheim's, I mean, some of these men and women were happiest just driving a tractor, even though they didn't grow up driving a tractor. They just loved, I mean, they loved, they were so proud driving that tractor. There is farming. something magical about driving a tractor. Well, there is. My husband won't let me drive our tractor unless uh, unless I'm being, <laughs> unless I'm being supervised because I have a tendency to run into things if I, because I'm not paying attention because I'm enjoying driving the tractor. Mm. But I love driving my riding lawnmower, which is almost the same thing. I, I love me a good riding lawnmower. Yes. The, the thing about driving a tractor is the sense of accomplishment is huge because you look straight ahead and you've got tall grass. You look right behind you, mown grass. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. It's my dad wasn't thing. particularly excited about me driving our tractor on the dairy farm either because I drove it into the creek at one point oh. in time. And so that I got grounded from that too. So, you know, there's, a, <laughs> there's always stories. So maybe it's a history of things that my husband's just afraid that I'm going to run it into our creek. So I, I just asked for another shot. Oh, I, I, I love driving it. It's, <laughs> it's fun. And I would drive it around the neighborhood if you let me. <laughs> but, yeah, and no, I guess I don't, I don't take orders well, so it may just happen one of these days. I'm just being respectful. Nice. So, so let's go back to Alan Holstein quick. Yes. Because Alan is a, an amazing guy. The and, man. And he is a true pioneer as well. Yes. And when I was at Linfield going through the Immersion Wine Program that I did several years ago, we spent 
I think, two full days with Alan in the vineyard. And we went to, I believe, what was his vineyard when you really didn't know what you were doing. So some of his rows are 12 feet apart. Some of them are five feet apart. Some of the vines are three feet apart. I mean, it's it was a kind of almost an experimental laboratory up on the side of the hill. And so I can only imagine your parents were kind of in that same, you know, experimental phase on how do you actually plant these grapes? You know, how wide the rows need to be for the tractor to go through them. You know, is it better if they're five feet apart or, you know, whatever. So what was their take on that? I mean, how did they, was it just trial and error? So the, my mom has always hated the, moniker of being a pioneer because to her that makes her feel like she's pushing a wagon wheel and wearing a bonnet and that's not my mom and she said listen you know and the true pioneers that it's it's tough work you know it's a lot of work and when she looks back and when i look back at growing up in the business we had probably at least four different trellis systems in our vineyard we had at least three, four different spacings in our vineyard. And this is all, you know, every time we planted something, we planted, we tried something new because mm-hmm. there was always something new under the sun. And being one of the first or being a pioneer, we didn't know what exactly the right thing was. So we made a lot of mistakes, but we got a lot of things right. You know, one of the one things we got right was the clone of Pinot Lardo plant. And we got that one dead right. So what did you choose? Let's let's stop right there and make sure that we don't forget that piece. Okay, the clone of Pinot Noir? Yes. So the the clones of Pinot Noir that we got right, really right, in Oregon was planting Pomard in Badensville. Planting some of these cooler climate, more, you know, Badensville is a Swiss clone. Pomard is traditionally the the clone in um, in Burgundy. Thank God it wasn't Maria Feld. You know, there are some clones of Pinot Noir that, that we planted, like we had a little uh, mother block that we tried some on and Maria Feld never got ripe. And that's another Swiss clone. It may get ripe now with climate change, but back then, oh my God. And um, you would think with a Swiss clone, because it is high altitude, it's not necessarily warm over there for the most part, mm-hmm. that it would have been, I don't know if I'd say it was great for over here, but you would think that it would have at least gotten ripe. The the Swiss, and when we say Swiss clones, I mean, these are clones that would be developed at the Swiss Institute in Vadensville. So Vadensville is like the town, like the Dijon clone was developed at, you know, in Dijon at the university there. So it wasn't, I mean, did they grow it to make it so it grows well in Burgundy? Yes. But it more, it was called Dijon because that's where it came from. Sure. Makes um, sense. University. And just like the Swiss clone are they trying to produce something that would grow well in Switzerland? But there are some, you know, warmer sites. It's not, everything's not at high elevation. But yeah, you're right. One would think that it wouldn't be a great clone for Oregon because it is a, you know, a cooler spot. But we got the Pinot Noir clones right, and we got lucky. We didn't get right Chardonnay clones. Yes. We did not get that right. And it took us, you know, that put us behind the eight ball about 20 years. And is that everybody or is that you? Um. So what we planted... Chardonnay clones. We planted the Wente clone and we planted California clone 108. And these are later ripening clones. And I think the Oregon Chardonnay explosion got started by the help of Alan Holstein in the late 80s because Dave Adelsheim was able to get some of the Dijon clones transferred to Oregon State University where they went through quarantine 
And then they got out of quarantine in the late 80s. Alan was one of the first to plant Dijon clones at the Knudsen Vineyard that he was overseeing. And then those Dijon clones started getting out. And that's why you're seeing now kind of a renaissance of Oregon Chardonnay, because you're seeing everyone who plants Chardonnay is planting on these Dijon clones. Now, because of climate change, can the 108, can the Wente clones do well here? Yeah. But it wasn't the case in the 70s and 80s. For sure. We needed an earlier ripening clone, and we did not have that. So It's all so interesting. Uh, I'm, I might be geeking out too much. but No, I, I love it because we've, I mean, we've done 50 episodes probably, and I usually deter people from getting too geeky, but yeah. we talk about so many different things that I think we haven't gone straight to the geek. We're still on the top level of the <laughs> geek. So it's, it's, all, it's all good. People can still follow. Nice. Yes. Nice. I want to um, kind of switch gears and talk about you as a, a vineyard kid because okay. you literally grew up in the middle of all this. Pi- I hate yeah. to use the word pioneering, but all of this experimentation. No, you, you all can this, use pioneering. Yep. I, I don't mean bonnets and wooden wheels. And wooden wheels. And, and my mom. My mom doesn't <laughs> like the term. I don't mind it, but my yes. mom's like, I am not a pioneer. I do not wear bonnets. You're like, you're right, mom. You yes. wear feather boas. That's cool. It's just a generation later. Totally. It's, yeah. It's totally. Just, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I know as a farm kid growing up in the dairy industry, I hated it. Hated yeah. everything about it. I hated feeding calves. I hated milking cows. Apparently, I wasn't very good at driving tractors. And, you know, I wanted nothing more than to get far, far, far away from it forever. And now I yeah. find myself, I'm back in the middle of it because I, I love it. I have my cows. I have my property, whatever. Were you the same way? So a, a little bit. Because the thing about the wine industry is we're wine growers. So we have a vineyard, but the vineyard is only part of the equation. We make wine from those grapes. So growing up, working in the vineyards in the summertime, hated it. It was tough work. Sucks. You, the worst thing ever is actually to pick grapes. So that's the hard... People say, oh, I, we'd love to help you pick grapes. No, you wouldn't. That's, don't no, you wouldn't. Don't it, ever ask me because I don't want to do yeah, it. You, I actually worked in with Jackson and Alan Holstein through that immersion Linfield class, just shoot positioning, oh, shoot and, positioning. Mo- and moving nice. chains and wires. And I'm just too old for that crap. And yeah. I'm just like, after about 10 minutes, I'm waving my white flag it, going, it loses, I'm out. <laughs> it loses its appeal pretty quick when you're out in the vineyard. But the thing that I always gravitated to and loved growing up was working harvest. Because harvest is basically... Um, a carnival atmosphere. You're making wine with people from all over the world. I mean, I grew up working with, at harvest time, we'd have these Frenchies, these Aussies, these Kiwis. We'd have people from all, Germans, Austrians. I mean, the, people from all over the world. And to to work intensely for a month to make wine with these people, was it was addictive. I bet it was one big party with the, lots of great food, there, lots there of was, great stories. I've never been to Australia, but I have worked enough harvest with some Australians, and I could not believe how much they could drink. That I envisioned going to Australia and just going, I don't know if I, my liver can, can handle this. Clearly, those are the people who worked Harvest Circle Blosser. I know not all Australians are like that. But it, it, in my mind, you know, I have this, this image. And, but yeah, I mean, growing up, working in the winery is much different than working in the, in the vineyard. But another thing growing up in the wine industry, and as I told my kids going to college, is growing up, you know, we're all, not only are we the wine industry, we're in the alcohol business. We make, we make alcohol. 
And some people just look at ass and make as making alcohol and not not making wine, which wine to me is food. And not to be and it's a disservice to wine to overdrink it. But we were growing up here in Dayton, we were never considered farmers. Even though we had tractors, even though we'd work in the field the same hours, even though we would have a harvest, we were never considered farmers. So we were never like in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't like you can join our club. And you would you would talk to some farmers and you'd say, Oh, yeah, what do you farm? I said, oh, I we farm grapes. And they go, That's not a farm. I'm like, well, what do you mean it's not a farm? And it was just, it was interesting. You know, a lot of the locals looked at the wine industry as not as farming. Man, things have changed. Thanks to Ken Wright, there's an FFA program at Yamhill Carlton High School where the FFA program is growing grapes. That's awesome. It's crazy. Growing up here, oh my God, we weren't considered a farmer. You, the FFA program would never have vineyards. Are you kidding me? They would, that's not farming. So it's, it's crazy to me, and, and I hate to kind of keep going back to my dairy heritage, but it's hard work. It's 24-7. You either milk it or it dies. Um, when I spent the time with Jackson and Alan and them and David and Jean Beck, who are wonderful people as well, I'm like, this blows. Like, this is this is such hard work. It is nonstop haircuts for the vines. It's shoot positioning. It's cutting. It's this. It's that. This is just as bad as a dairy cow other than there's no heartbeat. And, and teats, I guess, too. So, but yeah. very similar workloads in, in my eyes. Well, the, but the dairy industry never stops. Never. I mean, I think you really, you have to love being a dairy person because those cows are, you got, they get up 365 days a year. Yep. There's seasonality to, to growing grapes. If all you have is a vineyard, you basically can shut down the month of November and December. You know, there's not much going on. If you have a vineyard in a winery, you're year-round. But if you just have a vineyard, there are some times where there's some seasonality. There's no seasonality on in a dairy. And I growing up with some friends who were in the dairy industry, I'm like, wow. Yep. You Vacations work hard. don't exist. They don't. No. I don't know. I you have to really love that. I think you to get born born and bred into it, and it's just an expectation. Yeah. So yeah. I, my sister and I, my dad did not want us to dairy. So that was the end of the dairy farm. So Anyhow, yeah. back to wine. It's a lot. It's a lot more <laughs> enjoyable <laughs> than the dairy industry. Okay, so you grew up hard vineyard, loved the harvest in the winery. Yes. Did you move away, or did you just roll right into it? So, our parents never thought that the winery would last. So there was never any intention that my parents never said to my older brother, younger sister, and myself, "This one day will be yours, son." No, because they didn't know it would even be around. They didn't know. I mean, it was always a challenge just to meet payroll. So it was just, you know, that was part of the pioneering that was tough. It's like there was no market for Oregon wine. There was no proven, you know, Oregon didn't prove itself to be a, a place to grow New World Pinot Noir. I mean, it, it took decades to get to a place where my parents were like, wow, maybe this is a going concern. Maybe this will last into the second generation. But they didn't start saying that till the early aughts. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, it, 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 it took time for them to say, Hey, Alex, Nick, Allison, um, where are you guys? Where were you? Well, in the, um, I will say this for me. I don't think I was ever able to fully detach myself from the wine business because there was something that kept pulling me in. 
you know, and that's something, you know, growing up, as you know, growing up in a family business, no matter what it is, you're like that pebble in the, in the river and the river just slowly shapes that pebble. And as a pebble, you don't know any different, right? The water, you're used to that water shaping you. You know, you don't notice that, oh my God, you're actually one with the stream now. The water just has shaped you and molded you into something. And that's what happened to me. I mean, you still have a cow. I, well, not currently. It's in the freezer. Okay. Well, yeah. but you still you still have uh, bovine. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you that you know you can't get away from that. And what I realized was, I would try to do other things. You know, go to college. I was in the Air Force Reserves. I was bike mechanic. Got a degree in philosophy. Always thought about doing other things. But then when I came back to it, it's like, I really like this business. Like when I came back from my Air Force training. That was a, you know, September of 1994. Okay, I got back. What am I going to do? Well, I worked Harvest. Okay, worked Harvest, Circle Blosser. Then what am I going to do? Well, I looked across and there's Archery Summit and there, it looks like they're building a winery over there. So I went over there and talked to Andy Humphreys, who's one of the great, you know, vineyard managers like Alan Holstein. And Andy hired me and I was vineyard foreman there for a little over a year. But it was a job I knew how to do. And then after working there for a little over a year, I said to myself, shit, I need to go back to school. I need to get my degree. And, you know, it wasn't like my parents said, well, hey, go back and maybe should think about a degree in analogy or viticulture. No, I went back and got a degree in philosophy. What do you do with a degree in philosophy? You philosophize. You philosoph I can't even say it. You philosophize. philosophize. You philosophize. You know, it, it was something that I've always loved and I just needed a degree. Right, I just need to get a degree in something. That's I just felt that growing up in a family that values, you know, college. My parents went to Stanford, so it's like I knew I wasn't going to get into Stanford. So my brother went to Stanford, but Nick is really smart. I am not really smart. <laughs> <laughs> now, don't sell yourself short. There's well, a place for everybody. You're you're goddamn right. Thank you. You're mm. welcome. So, but it's. Uh, Getting that philosophy degree was something I, I, so I burned through that in a couple of years at PSU. And then when I got done with that, I'm like, okay, now what am I going to do? Well, actually, I applied with Alan Holstein to be a vineyard foreman again um, at Argyle. And or the, at that time, it was a Dundee wine company. And then I applied to sell life insurance. And then my mom's like, hey, why don't you try working for our local wine distributor? So I interviewed at Columbia Distributing, who was our distributor, and I got job offers from all three. Whether Alan Holstein admits it or not, I do remember getting a job offer to work for him as a foreman. But um, I'm assuming you didn't take that job since he I, doesn't I, remember. I didn't take that job. It, you know, to to Alan's uh, sanity, he I didn't take that job. So that's why he lasted as long as he did at Argyle, because I didn't become a vineyard foreman there. Makes sense. You can just ask, ask Andy how tough I was to manage. Um, so, you know, I didn't want, I, I said, like, hey, I didn't want to be, go back to the vineyard. I didn't want to sell life insurance because I suck at playing golf. And then, so I'm like, well, I've never sold wine before. I'll see how that goes. And so when you work for a distributor, you start at the bottom, which was merchandise. So I merchandised. Until a sales slot opened up and a sales slot opened up and I found out I was pretty good at selling stuff. Actually, I was Snapple salesman of the month one month. Now that is something you need to put on your wall. Goddamn right. I was a Snapple, man. Did you get a plaque? I didn't get a plaque. I got like a, a, a Snapple backpack. I got a Snapple jacket. 
I got, uh, I mean, you build these 500K Snapple displays, and I think that's what caused me to have a hernia a couple years ago and have an operation because you just, when you're building a 500K Snapple display, and Snapple is like glass, right? Yes. That's the best stuff, though. It's, I am addicted to, still addicted to Snapple peach. Don't drink a diet stuff. Stuff. Go for the full leaded stuff. Go for the full leaded stuff because the diet stuff, when that stuff would break, it would like take up the wax on the floor. That's what I remember about the diet <laughs> Snapple. <laughs> this is not a Snapple commercial. It's by not the a way. Snapple. Yeah, yes. exactly. Well, Wendy's not around anymore. She doesn't promote Snapple anymore. But yeah, I, you know, that's really what taught me from a wine industry standpoint is you can make great wine, but if you can't sell it, you're nowhere. What's the, what's the point? You're nowhere. Yes. It's all about sales and marketing. And even if you have the best, make the best wine ever. That was loud and clear working for, at that time it was Columbia. Now it's Young's or now it's RNDC. Another consolidation. I can't even keep up. But yeah, that was a eye opener. And then once, see that is working for the distributor is what my, then my mom started thinking. My mom's like, holy shit, this guy, my son can actually farm. He actually knows how to make wine because he's worked harvest all his life. And now he actually can sell. I need, I need someone who can sell because his last name is the right last name. So after about a year working at Columbia, my mom's like, hey, why don't you consider working here? I'll hire you full-time. It won't be like seasonal work like I've always done. It'll be like full-time working. You're on the road. You're selling. And I'm like, wow. So I thought about it because I also thought that, wow, this could be the last job I ever have. And if it's not the last job I ever have, how embarrassing might that be? <laughs> <laughs> So, but I took that and that was back in 1998. And have you and left since? I know your job has changed. Yes, my job has changed. I yes. have not, no, I've not, I've not left. You know, I've just, um, you know, I, I, I still love it. I mean, as I mentioned before we were talking, you know, the industry doesn't get any easier, you know, with the consolidation and everything, but I still have fire in the belly to make a great Pinot Noir. You know, that is what it's all about. And I, you know, what it is to be great, that's where I can use my philosophy degree. But it's, it's that ethereal greatness that, I, you know, trying to, trying to hit. Speaking of, let's have some Pinot work. Yeah, no kidding. I think it's a great place to stop quick, too. Wow, you guys are, Before we get too into the Pinot, I gotta say the bubbles that you popped at the very beginning were freaking fantastic. Oh, those were our 2017 Blossom Ridge Sparkling Rosé. So Blossom Ridge is a site in near you. It's in the Eola Amity Hills. Oh, very nice. So it's a cool site. It's a site that we can't always ripen the Pinot Noir to make still Pinot from, but it makes amazing base wine. And this is our 2017. We've been making um, a sparkling from Blossom Ridge since 2011. And the owner and I, Mark Zook, we have a very, very long-term lease on that vineyard. So, because we love that vineyard so much and we believe in the potential that that vineyard has for sparkling. So it's about a 17 acre vineyard and there's Pinot Noir and it has Pinot Gris, but we're gonna be grafting over all that Pinot Gris to more Pinot and Chardonnay. So we can really delve into that site for rosés. I think it's a good site for Blanc Noir and we'll also try to make a brute from that site with the with the Chardonnay we're putting in. Yeah, so. well, whatever was in the bottle was absolutely delicious. It had a really nice um, 
I don't know if richness is the right word, but there was definitely like some kind of meat to it to where it wasn't just really acidic and bubbly. It really had a really well, beautiful flavor. Thanks. We are lucky at Sokolblosser. So um, our, we actually have a sparkling winemaker. Her name is Robin Howell. And Robin is um, loves bubbles. And so Robin, um, I assist her in the tasting and the blending, but it is – it's at this level for sparkling wine, this is on the higher end. This is a, you know, 40, 50, $60 bottle of wine that you, sight is so critically important that you, the, the goal with sparkling wine is to get maturity without bricks increase. And you can do that in a cool site. That's why champagne does what they do so well is it's so high. It's so Northern North on the latitude that you're able to get maturity. The grapes ripen without getting a lot of sugar buildup because the sugar buildup means higher alcohol. Higher alcohol means less bubbles. So there's things that are downward pressures on bubbles and high alcohol means less bubbles. Um, See, so that was borderline geek, but that was actually really good. I like it. Is that good? Yes. Okay. And bricks, just for people to know, is sugar, sugar. level. Yes. yes. Sugar levels. B-R-I-X. Yes. Bricks is like deer. You know, it's a single and a plural. So you don't say brickses or deers. I don't know, but it's kind of, or mices, 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 mices. Yes. Well, that's a Tom and Jerry joke. I love that. I know. It's just just one, mices. One of my favorites. Mm. We left off on um, what your current role is. Yes. Yes. So what is your current role, my current, Mr. Circle Blosser? Current role. I'm the winemaker. Look so at, Look at you being the, head honcho. I'm the winemaker. So and it's something that uh, when I was, I remember I was like a junior in high school. And it was um, midnight at harvest. And I was working in the winery with our winemaker, John Ha, at the time. And, you know, working harvest, you always get that second wind at around midnight or late at night where you work another couple hours and then you just, you know, fall over and you got to go home. But the zombie was, state. Exactly. Exactly. We worked way too many hours at harvest, but that's so it goes. So I remember up in, I was up in the lab with John. And I said, John, I'm going to go home. He's like, no, you're not. You got to stay here. You got to watch this. Because, you know, Alex, one day you're going to be the winemaker. And he was the first one to actually say, you got to stay here, dude, because you're going to be the winemaker. I never thought about being the winemaker. But John Ha got it into my brain that, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll be the winemaker. My parents never said that, but John Ha said that. So I appreciate John for, for saying that. And for planting the seed. For planting the seed. And that seed has been growing. And so... When my stepdad announced his retirement, Russ Rosner, um, he was the last winemaker. And when he announced his retirement in 2010, that's when I kind of raised my hand and said, yeah, um, you know, it's interesting that Russ is retiring because uh, now that Allison's here and Allison can sell wine and she's a lot better looking than I am. And she's your sister. And she's my sister. Maybe I can uh, become the winemaker. And everyone's like, no, 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 you're the head of sales. What, 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 you know, what, you, you, everyone, love, Alex, you're so dynamic. Everyone's going to love that. You're going to miss you. And I'm like, hey, yeah, but I've always, this is what I've always wanted to do. I always want to be a winemaker. Yeah, I can talk and I can sell, but this is what I've always wanted to do. And so they said, all right, well, here's the deal. You got to go back to school and get get some kind of degree in it. We know you know how to make the wine, but there's some book learning that you need to have that we would feel more comfortable you having. So I went, got my um, winemaker certificate from UC Davis. Did you put that on a certificate on the wall? Hells yeah. Okay. That's on my wall in my office. 
right next to me and I used to, I was a, <laughs> one of my claims to fame or shame was I was a page for Senator Bob Packwood. Who, I was too. You were, get out of here. Yes, for like one day. Yep, it was no like- No shit. Uh, no shit. And I was at a oh wine dinner a month or two ago for Tori Moore. Don um, Olson yeah. was- Yes, so Bob Packwood was there. Get out of here. Total yes. Oh my God, okay. So, okay, well, I I was Bob's- um, Bob's page for a good six months. And I only so, got one day. Well, but I got a pin you got and a, a certificate. That's awesome. That was on my wall for a while. Yeah. It's cool. It's a crazy ass job working in DC. But um, yeah. So my that sheepskin from UC Davis is right next to this weird picture of me and Bob. So because neither of us were smiling in the photo and it looks really weird, but it it always makes me laugh. So I was I hoping it. you were going to tell me that it was like a picture of you with like Steven Tyler and like Aerosmith or something. Like that is what I was kind of imagining. Okay. Well, we used to have concerts at Soko Blosser Winery. So above in my office, now you got to come to my office, Heidi. Above in my office are all the acts that played at Soko Blosser. In the 90s, we had some crazy ass shows. I've got Harry Belafonte signed up. <laughs> no, yes. No John way. Denver. I've got, who else do I have up there that have signed it? I look at them every day. The uh, Aaron Neville, the Neville brothers played there. Tony Bennett played there. Dude, those are like big names. We had some big names. Look at you being like a high roller. Yeah, it's crazy. And so I put them all up because I love music. I put them all up. You know, one of the best shows we ever had was John Denver. John Denver Live. I thought that was going to suck because growing up, I saw John Denver on Sesame Street. I'm like, this is stupid. This is stupid. I don't want to listen to John Denver, Rocky Mountain High, whatever. No. Whoa. That guy put on one hell of a show. John Denver Live, I will put that up against, you know, seeing Bruce Springsteen live. I mean, he was just, he was that good. I had no idea. That's crazy. I had no idea. No idea either. No clue. Who would have thunk? Who would have thunk? John Denver, may he rest in peace. Exactly. Yeah. So, and now you can get a Rocky Mountain High in Oregon because it's legal. That's that's true. Okay, let's shift to Pinot. Now okay. that you are the head winemaker, yes. let's shift to Pinot okay. because that's where it all started was with mm-hmm. Pinot. And I'm yes. going to have you recite what your mom had said about Pinot because it was so beautiful, eloquent, and sexy all together. Okay, so let me describe to you because my mom can sell snow to the Eskimos and sand to the Arabs. I mean, she always had that ability to sell. And that was, I think it's part of her Sokol lineage. So when my mom was out in the marketplace for, she became president of the winery in 1990, 91. So in the 90s and the early aughts, she was just out there beating the streets. And still in the 90s, it was trying to explain to people what Pinot Noir is. So everyone was familiar with Merlot and Cabernet and trying to not only show people where Oregon is on a map, but to say what Pinot Noir is. And So she had to come up with a line about, well, what does Pinot Noir taste like compared to Cabernet? So my mom's line was this, which was, listen, Pinot Noir is a wine of elegance and finesse. It's not like Cabernet that's going to hit you between the eyes and just kind of knock your socks off. No, it's a wine of elegance and finesse. It's actually going to 
creep up on you and slip your socks off because that's what a fine Pinot Noir can do because it has subtlety and complexity. My mom does it so much better than I do. So but that I'm was, trying to do it justice. That was really quite good. But though. it's all about it's, you know, sneaking up on you and slipping your socks off because that is what Pinot Noir is about. It's Pin- more of a seduction. It it definitely is because it's not about power. Pinot Noir is about elegance and finesse. And what drives a great Pinot Noir is the structure in it, which is the acid. And, you know, acid is, think of acid as like your bone structure. If you have big bones, you can have a lot of muscle. So imagine muscle being the complexity. So if you have a big boned individual, you can become, you can put a lot of muscle on. If you're a small boned individual and you try to put muscle on you, you will have a stress stress fracture or you'll end up like Barry Bonds. No wonder why you're not in the Hall of Fame, buddy, is you you got too big. You roided up, dude, and you, you hurt yourself. I'm an LA Dodger fan, so I like to make digs at the Giants. Sorry, it's folks. I just we, turned off half your viewers right now. We we so. literally had this conversation last night. My husband was so upset about who did and did not get into the Hall of Fame oh, recently. Was he mad that? Yes. That yeah. Yeah. Well, big Poppy got in. Yeah. Right yeah. And so. there were so many other big names. But yes. Sometimes it's just timing. It'll take time. It, I mean, it, listen. I think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. But that's but I, that's I agree. I am a know. baseball fan through and through and yeah, I, grew up with the Atlanta Braves because TBS was the only channel oh, TBS, we had. Yes. Right. The, oh my God. The, the era of Daryl Dale Murphy. Oh, Dale Murphy. That was a good guy. Okay, back boy. to Pino. Okay. So if you have acid is like the bone structure. If you have really good acid, you can hang a lot of layers of complexity on that. And that is what on a great year like we're tasting 2018. So 2018. Oh my God, it's like Mother Nature just threw a pitch right down the middle and you're just going to hit that over the fence because- It's delicious. That Everyone made yes. great Pinot Noir in 2018. Mm-hmm. We it's all, good. if you didn't make a great Pinot Noir in 2018, get out of the business because it was, it was there for the pickings. Because not only do you get, you know, what makes a great vintage is everything's in balance. You get, the fruit gets ripe. You get plenty of tannins, you get the weight of the wine, and you get acid. All those three are in abundance and they're, and they're in balance. In vintages that aren't as great, you might have one, a lot of one, but not a lot of the other. You might have a lot of freshness of fruit because it got nice and ripe, but you may not have the acid. Or it might be, you may not have any tannins, but you got a lot of acid. So things, so what makes a vintage great in my mind is you get all three of them and they're in just in abundance. And thank God for 2018 because the next two years, were rough. nasty pitches off the off the plate. It was just really rough as a as I a love baseball analogies. I will use Oh my them all God, day you long. are so in my wheelhouse right now. So the analogy to me, you know, winemakers were batters. We're making adjustments every time we get to the plate, we're making adjustments. Mother Nature is the pitcher. Mother Nature is never going to throw you the same ball twice. And if she does, you got to make her pay. But the the batting analogy is apt because, especially in Oregon, sometimes we're lucky just to move the runners, just to have a squeeze play, put a bunt down, you're going to be at it first. But guess what? You move the runners. Very rarely are we going to get a pitch you can actually put the bat on. But when you do, you got to send it. And 2018 was a pitch we could put the bat on. 2019, oh, 2020, oh. But hey, you still have to move the runners. So you got to put the bat in the ball one way or another, even if it's a bunt and you get called out at first, you still got to figure it out. And that's what I love about winemaking is you got to figure that out one way or another. And every year is going to be different. Mother Nature's never going to throw you the same pitch. And I think that's what's so intriguing about the wine industry. And I think why I have 
um, found such a love for it. And it's not necessarily just the wine. I mean, the wine's amazing. This wine's great. But the whole process and this fact that you do have this factor of Mother Nature that is throwing you sliders and, you know, ugly curveballs and whatever else. Yep. You have to do the best that you can with what you've been given, whether it's bad weather, whether it's smoke, whether it's infestations of insects or some, some, something else. I mean, you just the never- plague. The plague. You know, whatever, Locusts. whatever happens, yes. right? Yep. Birds. Yes. The year of the birds. Yes. Um, and then the wine continues to live on. Even once you stick it in the bottle and cork it, it still is a living, breathing organism that is going to change as soon as you uncork it. Right. And then you let the cork out, cork out for a while too, and it changes even more as it oxygenates and blah, blah, blah. So. Yep. It, Th- that's what truly is special about the wine industry, and that's what separates us from the beer and the spirits industries, is we only get one shot a year to make wine. That's it. You mess up, there's always next year, just like baseball. Oh, you didn't get the playoffs, there's always next year. Yep. You know, hope blooms eternal. But we get one shot a year to make it, We're in the beer and the spirits, they can keep making it year-round. You mess up a batch, well, next week we'll start another batch. No, 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 no. There's none of that. You mess up a batch, you got to wait a long time. You're a one and done. You're one and done. So if you're lucky as a winemaker, you know, if God gives you the ability to have 20 vintages in you, 20 shots, 20 years of making is your shot to make a great wine or maybe 30. So I became winemaker in 2012. My hope is, you know, God willing, I'll have another 10, 15 years in me. At some point as a winemaker, it's tough to walk up the catwalk. And smell all the tanks. It, 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 Winemaking is a physical act. So there'll be a point where I need to, you know, call it. And may, that might be in my late 50s, early 60s. Just, you know, we'll see. But you have that 20 to 30 shots to make what you feel is that Pinot Noir. That ethereal, that Pinot Noir that you've always wanted to make. That Grand Slam. The Grand Slam. Yeah. And I'm a small ball kind of guy, so part of what I love to do is just win, you know, whether I hit the grand slam, hit the home run. Sometimes it's nice. It's a good feeling. I played baseball in high school and my first year of college, and there's nothing like connecting and hitting. You know, you don't feel, when you hit a home run, you don't feel that. You don't feel that. It's just effortless because the ball hits the bat in just the right place, and all of a sudden, before you know it, it's like you're running around the bases. It's It's the sweet spot. It is that sweet spot. Yeah, you better fill me back up because I drank that first okay, Pinot so down quite nicely, this and is, now we got a second one. This is the tw- this is the same vintage twenty eighteen. This is our watershed block. This is our higher elevation site, and this has a little bit more oomph to it. This is a, it's a darker color. It's a little bit darker color. This is uh, one of the unfortunate parts about being a pioneer is we planted everything on own rooted vines. So starting in the early nineties, actually. Go back to Alan Holstein. Alan was hired to um, plant Domaine Druin's vineyards. That was the first planting I know of on rootstock in Oregon, was what Alan did in 87 or 88 when he planted DDO for the Druin family. And so rootstocks, because we have phylloxera in Oregon, we were the second to get phylloxera in Oregon, the first with Gary Fuquay at Fuquay, going back to Gary. His vineyard was the first to succumb to phylloxera. Ours was the second. And so we started replanting Sokol Blaster in 1997, and we finished in 2007. So it took us about 10 years to replant all 80 acres. Wow. And yeah, it was a it was a process. It's time and money. It's time and money, right? Yeah. And phylloxera is one of those things that it's a it's basically a virus. 
It's a root louse. Yeah, yes. it's like it's like you know it used to be. It's, I I would explain it. It's like getting HIV. Now you can survive. You can live and have HIV. But you know, back in the day, I would explain to people. You know, you, you don't die of HIV. You die of AIDS. And just like you don't die of phylloxera, you die of what phylloxera does to the vine. Yep. So it gets another disease. It eats all the roots so that the plant can't take up nutrients and water, and then all of a sudden it gets something and dies. Yep. Nope. For sure. So over those 10 years of replanting, I mean, it's time and money. So did you change varietal or sorry, not varietals, clones? We changed everything. You changed everything. Oh my God. It was our opportunity. Sure. It was our opportunity to be a new winery. I mean, we learned so much. So we had, you know, the old first generation vineyard was like 600 vines an acre. We doubled that with all the replantings. We're now at 1,250, seven feet between the rows and five feet between the vines. That's more typical spacing in Oregon now. But um, when we started replanting in 1997, that was really tight spacing for us. We doubled the vines per acre. We tried some of the new clones. We did some of the Dijon clones of Pinot Noir. We replanted mostly Pomard and Vainsville, the 1A and 2A. So replanting was an opportunity for us to catch up with all the new guys. I mean, all the new guys were coming in, planting at the right spacing, the right clones, using all the knowledge that we had that we couldn't use until we replanted because replanting is so expensive and time-consuming. It's like you, you don't just do it willy-nilly. So that was our opportunity. And so not only did we use some new clones, we also changed up what we planted. So Watershed used to be mostly Chardonnay. Well, now in Watershed, there's no Chardonnay. It's 100% Pinot Noir. So it's something that and the watershed block, what we've, you know, with the planning there, it's, this, is, this is half Pomard, half Badensville. And when I say Badensville, it's 2A. We also have some Badensville 1A, which is considered to be the 1A is the, the let clone of, of Pinot Noir. So, and the, this watershed is, when you plant on rootstocks, you, the wines are so different than the Pinot Noir we used to make from watershed. They're much more intense. They're bigger. They're bolder. They're showing you, there's a lot of tannins in this wine. This is a much bigger wine than the first Pinot Noir. And the color also shows that as well. But the watershed is, it's named after, it butts up against the city of Dayton's watershed. So that's where the city of Dayton gets all their water is right in these trees. And rightfully so, named. Nice yeah. nice work. So it's just a simple, yeah. We, we're we not very creative in naming our blocks at Sokol Blosser. They're all named after what used to be there or something that is there. So watershed, because it's next to the watershed. The first Pinot Noir is called Old Vineyard Block because this was our original planting in 71. So we're not creative. Guess what used to be in the big tree block? A big tree, maybe. Yeah, a big tree. I mean, it's just, I don't know why it is, but we... I think people work well with simplicity and directions (laughs) and things that actually look tangible rather than, you know, some sort of, you know, fancy schmancy name or whatever. It's like when I get directions, it's like, um, I want, you know, where's the big tree and the boulder on the left? So things like that. That's that's kind of, that's Sokol Blosser. So, so let's run through the last couple of varietals and things that you guys are making in, in okay. the tasting room. Yeah. And then I have my magic question at the end because this Love is going to be questions. super interesting with you because you're so questions. dynamic and creative. Okay. Well, I hope so. We'll see. Um, okay. So Pinot Noir clearly is our shtick. You know, we farm 130 acres, all certified organic. Um, we've got, you know, most of that's in Pinot Noir. We also have some estate Pinot Gris. We just now have some estate Chardonnay. That, you know, we, because of phylloxera, we ripped out all of our Chardonnay and didn't replant any Chardonnay because in the nineties we thought Chardonnay was dead. Well, guess what? 
It's not dead. It's back. It's back. And it's fantastic. So now we, we're doing Chardonnay again, and we're also very serious about sparkling wine. So we've got our sparkling rosé from Blossom Ridge. We also do a brute. We call our Bluebird Brute, which is a, a nice blend of not just Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but we also blend into it in the base wine, some Riesling, North Thurgau, and a little bit of early Muscat. So it's Ooh. a unique base wine blend that goes into that brute. A Blanc de Blanc that actually were buying grapes from Knudsen. That Alan Holst back to Alan Holstein. Alan yeah. Holstein planted He's been some grapes. Kind of the star of the hour. <clears throat> you know, there's there's some times when I've been hanging around Alan that, you know, he is not the most talkative dude, but when he talks, he says some really smart stuff. So I was he talkative when he was a teacher? So I, so I found that he was like kind of low and slow and kind of talk. And then all of a sudden he'd get excited. And then he was like excited and exuberant and like cussed like a sailor. And it was like the best thing ever. Oh my God. Like, I've never seen that. Alan oh my God. Time. It was so great. I've seen so, more of the, yeah. the, the, the serious Germanic farmer that, that I Alan fell in is. love with him. Yeah. Yep. No, Alan. And he's also, he's got a really funny sense of humor too. Yes, he does. So, yes. Um, I, I enjoyed him thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah, no, Alan, um, it used to be that the two jokers were Alan Holstein and Rollin Souls, because, you know, Rollin was a winemaker, mm -hmm. Alan was the vineyard dude, um, and those two. Were oh a handful God. together. They were a handful. I can imagine. They, I'm sure, I'm surprised their photos, they might be, their photos used to be up at the wall at Lumpy's for the, for the antics they would do, but, you know, Lumpy's has changed hands, we'll see. Yeah, they're legends in, in the Lumpy, yeah. the lump, ways of Lumpy. On the Strip. Yes. On the Strip in Dundee. <laughs> yes. Alan Holstein, Rollin Souls, you're still, you're, you are still special. Okay, so where do we find you? They are special, by the way, but yes, <laughs> yes. Let's, let's move on to where we find you, because this is technically about you. Okay, okay, yeah. All right, so where do you find me? I don't know, you tell we me. We are in Dayton. We're about two miles south of Dundee, right off Highway 99W. So it's a, it's a road that people hate these days, or for the past 10, 15 years. But we're right off that strip. Some people, they, everyone's driven by us. But people sometimes are so pissed off when they drive by us, they don't think about coming and, and stopping. Because and, and stopping, it's like, I just want to get to Spirit Mountain Casino, or I just want to get to the coast, or I want to go down and just meet with Heidi and talk about insurance at country, Countrywide Financial. Um, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what most people do. That's what I was figuring. Yes. They want to come see us that's, here at the office. That's what I was figuring. Yes. That's what I was figuring. It's a beautiful office here. So, and we're open. We used to be open daily. Actually, in 1978, we opened up the first tasting room to be a tasting room in the state of Oregon. So, before we opened Pioneer. up our tasting room, pioneers again, bring out the wagon wheel. I'm going to find a wagon wheel for you for Christmas, just, just so it, you just know. A, just a big old wagon wheel. Yep. Yeah. And then I'm my gonna... mom comes over, and, and my mom's like, what the hell is that? So come on, mom. It's a wagon wheel. Pioneers, <laughs> my friend. Pioneers. But our, our tasting room um, used to be open daily, but you know, part of the pandemic has, has meant that uh, getting the staff is not as easy as it used to be. So we're open um, six days a week. So we're closed on Tuesdays. But we're open um, 10 to 4. Wednesday through Monday, and uh, we do sit-down tutor tastings. We also have a pretty big culinary program, so we do a lot of small bites with, you know, food and wine pairing things that you can do. Um, like other wineries, we have Cellar Club, so where you could, you know, I do make stuff that's special just for the Cellar Club members. And yeah, we try to, you know, educate, but also make people feel comfortable about 
learning about wine, getting into wine, and there's no bad question about wine because, you know, it's just wine. That so, is true. It is just an agricultural commodity. It's right. It's not a commodity. and put it in a bottle. There you go. Value-added egg at its finest. There you go. Okay. Here's the million-dollar question. A million-dollar question? It is. Okay. Okay. So you get one bottle of wine. Okay. One snack. One snack. Or meal. Okay. Preferably a snack. Okay. Because I like snacks. Okay. And one celebrity to share it with. And John Denver is dead. But technically, you can do alive or dead. Who who's your choice? So this is this is this is interesting. Okay. So I've definitely thought along on hard about my desert island wine. And it would definitely be I love I love Pinot Noir. But there's something very, very special about Chablis. And Chablis is Chardonnay. And the way they make Chardonnay and Chablis, they grow it on this, you know, chalky soil. And there's a special part of Chablis called Le Clos. It's a Grand Cru site. There are a number of producers that own on, on Le Clos. But any Chablis from Le Clos, I'll take. I don't care what it is. There's five or six of them that make Chablis from Le Clos. I will, that is, that, I don't care what vintage, I just, that site, it's that site driven right there that makes that Chablis that just sings. Anyone I've had, any vintage, it's just like, wow, this is, you can't replicate site. And that's what's so awesome about that. Let me see. And you said a snack. Yep. I'm all for a good snack. Y'all for a good snack. Um, what is something that I jones for? Well, let me get to the uh, person who I'd want to have it with. You know, it's funny that we're having this interview and this discussion because I am consistently amazed with Terry Gross, who is the interviewer for uh, her show is called Fresh Air. And Terry Gross has got to be the most freaking amazing interviewer ever. I think she's better than Oprah. You know, she just, she sets, there's this, it's, it's crazy when you, anybody she interviews, you get stuff out of them that you never, ever get, you know? So I would love just to hang out with Terry Gross and I'm not into jazz. I know she's into jazz, but I'm gonna say, you, we can't talk about jazz. Terry, we're not gonna talk about jazz. That's off the table. Don't bring up jazz because I'm not into jazz. All right. I'm not on the jazz. I'm not into jazz. Let's talk about something else, Terry. But it'd be all right, be Terry Gross. And then let me see. And Fresh Air is on like NPR kind of stuff. So I'll have to check it out because I've never heard of she's, either. She's well, I've heard of NPR, but not yeah. Terry I think she she has a podcast too. Okay. So if you ever want to like, you know, if, get some skills. If you have a role model, dude, Terry Gross. Man, okay. I'm she on can it. nail it. Oh my God. She's so good. Oh, snack. You know, one of my favorite things, and it's it's more of like a meal, but Julia Child is amazing. You know? And sure. those of you, us who've tried to if you ever try to make a Julia Child recipe, oh for sure. It's not easy. Nope. She is very, very difficult, you know, and, but she wrote the, the only thing I can make out of her, Julia Child's, the master in the art of French cooking or whatever it was, is beef burgundy. And it takes me all day. But the Julia Child recipe for beef burgundy is lights out. And 
even I can make beef burgundy from Julia Child. So I know everyone in podcast land can make beef burgundy, but beef burgundy with a bottle of Oregon Pinot Noir, preferably Sickle Blosser, maybe 2018 Watershed, you'll kill it. <laughs> just just to kind of throw just that in throw there. It in there. Yep. You'll kill it. I mean, I, I it's not a snack, it's a meal, but I'm just, I you know, I make it every New Year's Eve and my boys love it and Jenny loves it. It takes all day to make it. But beef burgundy, Julia Child, French cooking, or whatever that cookbook is. With some Chablis. With some Chablis. Yeah. (laughs) Chablis will work. I'll take it. I'll take Le Clos. Yeah. I love it. I I love the answers that we get from that because they are seriously all over the board. I'm sure they are. Oh my God, they're everywhere. How about you? What would you do? Oh, no one's ever asked me that. Damn it. That's Um, a great question. Well, I just went through, I threw Aerosmith at you. So I'm going to hang out with Steven Tyler for a while because- He's pretty kick-ass. And, he is so kick-ass. And he is like the never-ending energizer rabbit, um, I think, as far as— what speaks the, to you is also your kids. I mean, look what his uh, yep. Steve Tyler's kids have done. I mean, that says something about exactly. the kind of person you are. So, He's pretty badass. I I'm saw him in you. concert years and years and years ago. You. I would say that—I'd uh, have to take a beer because— Yeah? Just because it's easy okay, and I can beer? pack it in my pocket. Do you have a favorite? Oh, Lord. Um, Boneyard RPM is probably my go-to for an IPA. Oh, nice. Yes. You, you like IPAs. You, I, like, you, like, an, you like hops. I do. I'm an IPA girl. You like that Oregon hoppiness. Yes. Nice. And, oh, I love it. Actually, I just had some of the best freaking tacos ever in Ooh. Cabo and um, La Lupita's. Fish tacos? I'm, nope. They weren't fish tacos. They were, it Pork. was called La Gringa. And uh, and a ribeye taco, and the lagringa is like um, oh the God, shaved I'm... pork. Whoa. So La Lupita's, I expect a free meal next time I come to Cabo, but it was so good in San Jose del Cabo. Whoa. Highly recommend. Okay, ribeye tacos, ribeye tacos, That's lights out. and then the shaved pork tacos. Oh my God! Yes, okay. delish. I'm Thanks with for you. asking me that. Nobody ever asked me questions, so that's kind of cool. Well. But I, yeah, I, 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 I'm realizing that you and I are probably meant to be friends. We were both born in 74. <laughs> we both have the gift of bullshit. Yes. And, um, yes. and you know, we hang out good together. So <laughs> anyhow. Okay, Alex, this has been beyond fun. Boy, and I know it. I'm way, we're probably way over time, but who cares? Um, and uh, now it's time to go eat. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. So cheers, my friend. And uh, until Thanks. next time. Yeah. Right on, honey. Okay. Pleasure to be here. 